Hey everybody, my name is Kyla. Welcome to my channel where I talk about the stock market and the economy amongst other things. Today I want to talk about the structure of the labor market. So there's this video floating around of a young woman who's talking about how difficult it is to work a nine to five job because she has to commute. So I've often talked about the meaning of work. I've talked about financial nihilism. I've talked about how Gen Z relates to work, but I want to talk specifically in this video about what it means to work a nine to five. I know I'm probably just being so dramatic and annoying, but this is my first job, like my first nine to five job after college and I'm in person and I'm commuting in the city and it takes me fucking forever to get there. There's no way I'm going to be able to afford living in the city right now. So that's off the table, like fucking duh. If I was able to walk to work and it w it'd be fine, but I'm not. So it literally takes me like I leave here, like I get on the train at 730 and I don't get home till like 615 earliest. And then like, I don't have time to do anything. I don't, I want to shower eat my dinner and go to sleep I don't have time or energy to cook my dinner either like I don't have energy to work out like that's out the window like I'm so upset oh my god nothing to do with my job at all but just like the nine to five schedule in general is crazy being in the office nine to five like if it was remote you get off at five and you're home and everything's fine but like I'm not home it takes me long to get home and like like, people that drive to the office, like, it doesn't, you don't get off at five, and I know it could be worse, I know I could be working longer, but, like, I literally get off, it's pitch black, like, I don't have energy, how do you have friends, like, how do you have time to, like, meet, like, a guy, I don't know, like, how do you have time for, like, dating, like, I don't have time for anything, and I'm, like, so stressed out, and I'm also getting my period, so that's why I'm all emotional, but, like, Am I so dramatic? It's fine. This young woman is in the video and she's she can't live in the city because she can't afford to live in the city. So she has to commute into work every day. And she's talking about how difficult that is. The commute takes her quite a long time and then she's at work and then she has to commute home. And by the time she gets home, it, she doesn't want to make dinner. She doesn't want to really hang out with her friends. She doesn't want to go to the gym because she's tired. And this is a very common experience. When you join the workforce, you sort of end up feeling all of these things that this girl is talking about. It's a completely reasonable response to overwhelming stressors and of course there's a lot of accounts that don't know how to read and so they're tweeting about this video and they're like oh you know Gen Z doesn't want to work anymore um this is what the real world is like little girl but that's not what she's talking about in the video in the video she's specifically talking about the structure of the nine to five she says verbatim that this is not about the work this is about the structure of the work which is a very important differentiation the balance of going into the office for an office job to do office work is, sometimes feels like there isn't much outside of the liminal spaces of the office walls. And to be fair, the structure of the nine to five is a relic of the industrial revolution. So in agricultural societies, people would wake up the, with the sun. They'd go to bed with the sun. When the sun set, they were asleep. When the sun rose, they were awake. But as soon as we started using big machines for everything, there had to be a standardization of the workday. This standardization was terrible. It was 16 hour work days. Um, and it was also six days a week. And it was also children on factory lines, which was horrible. So all of a sudden there was now a lot of people who were like, okay, okay, we need to reevaluate this standardization because it's painful for everybody involved. Robert Owens, uh, who's a fascinating man who tried to develop socialist utopias, said this term, eight hours labor, eight hours recreation, eight hours rest. But it was really a battle to get there. Employers, of course, did not like employees fighting back. They would uh, fire union members, they would hire strike breakers, and they would break the kneecaps of anybody that was trying to live 
life differently than what these employers wanted them to do, but employees were persistent. So the 19, so the 1886 Haymarket Affair is just one example of many of how bloody things got. I'm doing a really reductive summary here, and the whole labor market movement of the 1800s is really fascinating and you should go and check it out because I think it's really important to understand what we're capable of as a society. I feel like that is obviously a very tense, a very trying time, but it shows under the collective nature of unions, of people just saying, okay, we're in this together, what can get done? So the 1886 Haymarket Affair is just one example of how bloody things got. It began as a peaceful rally, and then of course it became unpeaceful. Somebody fired a into the police force. Many people were harmed and some people were killed and eight of the people of the labor market movement were arrested and four of those people were executed. This is again a simplistic and reductive summary of a time that was really dynamic and changed the way that we interact with the workforce at large. But the way that communication happened between employees and employers during this time was strikes. So things like the Haymarket Affair, which was a rally, were just one example of, of the, the ways that they had to communicate because nobody was listening to anybody. Employees would withhold labor so employers could not generate capital, and so it continued. Any reduction in working hours was met with a subsequent reduction in wages until 1914. Ford Motor Company was the first company to reduce hours to eight hours a day, and they also doubled wages to $5 a day, and everybody flipped out, and they were like, oh my gosh, how could you do this? You're gonna go bankrupt. Like, us, the investors, are really mad at you, dude. You should be giving us dividends, not paying your employees more. We're all about the short term here on Investor Island. <laughs> but of course, it actually benefited the investors because the profits doubled for Ford Motor Company once they rose the wages and um, reduced the workday. They doubled from 30 million in 1914 to 60 million in 1916. Henry Ford, terrible man, but he said a lot of interesting things during this time. He said, well, you know, when you pay men well, you can talk to them. He recognized the human element in mass production. He knew that retaining more employees with lower costs and a happier workforce would be greater productivity. The payment of $5 a day for an eight hour day was one of the finest cost cutting moves we ever made. So Henry Ford, terrible person again, did a few things. He recognized that short term cost cutting resulted in long-term issues, recognized his employees as people, and saw wealth as something to distribute, not just to hoard. Of course, once one company does it and it works, other companies have to do it too. It was a while until it was made law, but the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 set the maximum work week to 40 hours a week, created time and a half overpay, and set the right to a minimum wage, and also prohibited child labor. So we've made a lot of progress since then, not even 100 years ago. Now we don't have four-year-olds dusty on the assembly line, but progress never really ends. So we always have to keep on looking forward, right? So the nine to five now. So work can be broken down into the job, the commute, and community. So when you think about a job, it's a function of hours, it's a function of content. So what are you working on? Responsibilities, what are you in charge of? As well as the intersection of your passion and your interest. For the commute, it's the traffic that you might have to deal with. It's the length of the commute that you might have to deal with. For the community, it's the coworkers that you're interacting with. It's a soft work. It's the growth path that you're on. Do you feel like you can achieve things at the job that you're at? 
And for many, the nine to five is a job that sort of maybe isn't satisfying, and that's okay for a lot of people. The drudgery for money idea is very alive and well, as Eric Baker coined, a commute and some sort of path forward with people around them. It can feel like a perpetual cycle of work and rest with little time for personal pursuits because there is increasing friction with the structure of work. And of course, the eight hour workday is incredible. It's fascinating, it's amazing that we were able to achieve that. It's um, something that was a celebration of workers' rights over a century ago. So it's probably time for us to reinvent that wheel yet again. And there's a bifurcation of many things across many lines. So laptop jobs versus in-person work, traditional industries versus B2B SaaS companies and things like that. There are a lot more types of jobs now because we have more things to do now, although people still pretty much work the same jobs that existed 100 years ago. But still, this frame of the nine to five day remains the same. And of course, this isn't really nine to five, but it's the, plus the commute. Um, you know, with the pandemic times, we've lost that. And you saw all these people like explore passions and develop hobbies. And of course we were locked inside. So it was kind of hard in a lot of instances, but you still saw people able to explore new ideas and to develop new jobs. That's what happened to me. I had free time during the pandemic and I was able to get really into the Federal Reserve. And I'm familiar though with like this commute and this, this sort of tough, beginner adult mode cycle because I graduated in 2019 from Kentucky, moved right out to Los Angeles. Number one, had no clue how Los Angeles works. So I was terrified, a little city girl in a big city world. And then also I had to be in the office at 5 a.m. So I'd scooter and that was about a 15 minute scooter or I'd take a 45 minute train to get into the downtown office because I did not have a car. And I usually was in the office around 5 a.m. You know, West Coast company working East Coast hours. And then I'd work until time that was probably not ideal considering my start time and then I'd scooter or I'd take the train home uh, or get a ride from a very generous friend but but then it was dark and I was tired and I still managed to like fit in workouts and stuff but I was exhausted and I only did that for six months I don't know how people do it for longer than that six months later the pandemic happened uh, so it was a different experience for most of my adult life where three and a half out of the four years I've been working remote but when you first join the corporate life it's very jarring it's a huge adjustment I remember you know walking into the office and not being sure with where definitely said a lot of things that I shouldn't have said and you just don't know how to adapt and that's a mental load that people have to adapt to plus the commute if you have traffic if you're dealing with you know time and time and transit eats away at the time that you have during the day, obviously. The younger generation, notably Gen Z, grapples with this evolving de definition of work. Unlike previous generations, they face these unprecedented challenges, climate change, an uncertain economy, ballooning student loans, and the struggles of identity and purpose in a digitized world. And I've written a lot about how Gen Z relates to work, one piece of fast companies I talked about, and then another exploring financial nihilism, and then another about the meaning of work within the younger generation, how they relate to work, the world, others and themselves. This generation has to go about things differently. Gen Z seems to be searching for broader freedoms in a world dominated by corporations and advertisement. And also if you have a feeling just medicated and also student loans and also the housing crisis and also hyper individualism and also the earth is burning. So there's nothing to do but try and save it. The younger generation has grown up in a time of economic turmoil an unwritten redefinition of the standard of living and interconnectedness that at times is painfully restrictive. 
And then also, work has evolved around unnecessary provisions. The age of surplus created the jobs of excess. The only way to stay ahead is to produce, 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 but that's been increasingly weird. When people sat back after the 2016 election and during the pandemic, too many truths began to break the pattern of the story we had told ourselves in this age of industrial maturity about the work that we do. And in that process, many came to the weird realization, especially in the rather work-focused USA, that their work might not be the key to self-actualization. And for some people it is, but for the vast majority of people it might not be. And that's where things get sort of weird. The pattern gets messed up in our work story. The work isn't what we thought it would be. Derek Thompson has done a lot of work on this, and I have an interview coming out with him next week as a heads up, charting the rise of the managerial class against the decline of religion and the rise of something that he has termed as workism. Many people today ask their jobs to provide community transcendence, meaning self-actualization, accessible therapy, all the things we have historically sought from organized religion. These workers, particularly highly educated workers in the white collar economy, feel that their jobs cannot be just jobs and that their careers cannot just be careers. Their jobs must be callings. And if you feel like your job isn't a calling, that feels bad. But in this video, the woman isn't even talking about the work itself. She's talking about the structure of work. But what is hard work? So Steve Schwartzman, the CEO of Blackstone, said that remote workers don't work as hard. And it's sort of like, well, what is hard work, buddy? Uh, is it something that's measured by productivity or worker happiness? And, you know, maybe hard work isn't smart work. I know a lot of investment bakers that work very hard. They work long hours, but oftentimes they're waiting to get a deck back or something. Right? There's a lot of time in between. Is that hard work or is that smart work? And maybe things don't have to be how they always were. So the concept of hard work is kind of this religion, like we bow down to the altar of profits or whatever, and that shapes how we work. Um, but maybe we can work smarter. We must ask if our current work models are smart and sustainable, especially given our technological capabilities. Also, work doesn't promise what it once did. Maybe it's easier to swallow the commute when home prices are in reach and things feel more tangible. It's increasingly more difficult to finance life on a nine to five, hence the woman in the video not being able to live in the city and having to commute a quite a long way to get into her job. She can't afford it. But the structure of work is enforced by a lot of things, the absurdity of modernity, artificial constraints, and the silliness of sticking to things that don't really work for the modern age. So going back to the video, there was a lot of horrible responses to it. The responses sucked. It was very much small people saying small things about their small interpretation of the world. Life was hard for me and therefore it should be hard for you too. I cannot envision change and my small mindedness is clear. This is the way that it is, sweetheart. I don't want to spend a lot of time discussing what people discuss, but every time that you talk about change in the workforce and because I've written on this quite a bit, there's a typical response of like, well, you know, millennials thought the same thing and look at them now, they've sucked it up. Haha, <laughs> you're beaten, you're beaten down. <laughs> to the point where you don't want to stand up anymore and it's like why are you like like why are you celebrating this and of course there's an element of like well things were hard for me student loans being a key example th things were hard for me and therefore they should be hard for you too um, I can't think beyond the limits of my own path therefore nothing is possible outside of what I've personally achieved or some sort of variation of that uh, and for example Jason a podcast host quote tweeted this woman and was like oh princess I'm sorry you had to commute and work and have a job and everything it's like so extra and it's like dude like what are you saying like <laughs> the pea brain nature of those that can't envision a future different than the present are the problem we can't punch down on people that are just trying to figure out how the world works adapting to the workforce is hard and everybody knows that and compassion goes a really long way so some of the reasons to shift away from the structure of the 9 to 5 are biological, like circadian rhythms. I wake up at 3 a.m. every day. It's crazy, It's but like it works for my clock. I love being up in the morning time. 
but I have friends who can't really achieve anything unless they're working past 8 p.m. Like that's their time to thrive, 8 p.m. yonder. For me, it's 3 a.m. yonder. Evening types and morning types and chronotypes are really important to how we work and the structure doesn't make room for that even though people are different and they work differently. But there's also social aspects to work too. So the iron cage that Max Weber describes is really poignant here. When modern life becomes bureaucratized, hierarchies, rules, procedures, it can feel dehumanizing. There's an element of artificiality to this, a maintenance of normalness where innovation could take place. And people can sense that. You can sense when a system is no longer working, when it's a relic from the past versus something useful and good and beneficial. People can sense when change is necessary. And finally, we should help new generations and not mock them. Adapting to the real world is hard and it's scary and it's confusing. And because of the incentives of social media, people are much more willing to punch down, at least online. I think a lot of people are willing to help out in person. I think that was one thing that was fascinating about the labor market movements of the 1800s was it was a collective. People were like, well, we're in this together. The only way that we're not going to be working until we have an early death is if we, we do this together, which is kind of missing from today's world. Rather than ridiculing new generations for questioning the status quo, we should empower them to redefine it. Just as workers in the 1800s united for better conditions, today's society should rally to make work meaningful and humane. Work as a structure doesn't have to be how it was. Less than 100 years ago, we achieved the eight-hour workday. Of course, we can do something just as amazing now. Things can be reinvented again, and they likely will be. The four-day work week, remote work, async communication is already changing how we interact with each other. Keynes thought that we would be working 15-hour work weeks by the 21st century, and that's not going to happen, probably. Work is a status symbol. That video was not about not wanting to work anymore. That video was about wanting to work differently with flexibility and time to pursue other things that, let's be real, will probably lead to a new career path. Basically, that young woman should be able to walk to work and have friends and have time to be a person because that is what society is about. We've probably gotten to that point, at least in modern society, where you can be a person and should be able to afford being a person. Her video was reasonable. Things don't have to be how they always were. Instead of simply saying to somebody who's pointing out, well, maybe things could be differently, well, life sucks get over it. We should be saying, life sucks. Let's do something about it. Thanks so much for hanging out. Thanks so much for spending time with me. And Moo, you can't really. My coworker here. I hope that you all are doing okay. And I'll talk to you very soon.